Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still on our journey of the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 76. Last week we continued this, I don't know if you want to call it discourse, it's more like a an argument that's going on between Jesus and definitely the Jewish leadership could be some of the crowds as well about how they're the, these contenders of Jesus are using their... Jewishness in terms of being descendants of Abraham is kind of their justification, and Jesus yeah. is clapping back at that, saying that like you're you're claiming to use your descendancy of Abraham as your means of justification, but the way that you're living and the works that Abraham did in his own life, like you're very far from emulating Abraham. And again, they yeah. get caught up on this stuff of saying that he has a demon because he's opposing them, which is just crazy. Um, and <laughs> yeah. Jesus justifies his stance by saying that like he's met Abraham, and we had this really cool discussion of going all the way back to kind of the beginning of the Gospels with that aspect of who Jesus is being the Word and the wisdom, and that Abraham would have potentially got to meet this expression of God that we later see in the person of Jesus show up in his instances of meeting with God and how it, it's showing God's characteristics and his nature more than we should treat it as <clears throat> Jewish Jesus in the flesh as who had uh, an interaction with Abraham back at the beginning of the story. Yeah. And then we we ended with this mind-blowing statement that Jesus says like before Abraham was I am and how that connects to all the times that God said that to Moses whenever they were he was going to go rescue the people to Abraham himself saying here I am and how the people would have connected with it just we were just falling over ourselves much like many of the people were uh, when when they heard that and there was another young man who was somewhat famous for saying here I am who was that? Oh yeah, I believe he has red hair, and he's a he's a particular <laughs> co-host of a of a podcast. So if you didn't pick up on that, I actually missed the the calling card that Paul used last week. But yeah, that's what our whole intro is based on: is the I am statement of God, Abraham, the major characters in the story about you're not going anywhere. Like this is what my identity is. Yeah, there's even a young character in the Bible named Samuel. Who says, here I am, Lord. I know. Man. It's awesome. So good. Yeah, so that whole thing was just such a big deal. Big, uh, good stories. Abraham, you know, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. That's a very uh, different way of thinking about that phrase than what we would naturally do in English, whatever. It's all good. But anyway, Jesus, he kind of gets finished arguing with these guys, and he sort of slips out of the temple. And then John continues the story. It's kind of a weird way to start it, but chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 says this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
Okay. Now, I don't know about you. He started talking about, you know, uh, how important he was, the light of the world, all that. I forgot all about the blind guy. So, <laughs> so let's see if we can put all this whole thing together here. First of all, just to kind of make sure that we're grounded, we're still in Jerusalem. This is just after the festival of Sukkot. We don't know exactly what day, how much time passed, whatever, but that's where we are. And he runs into this man who's blind from birth. Now, does that remind you of anyone we've already talked about, Samuel? Wasn't there a guy who was paralyzed from birth? Yeah, back at the pool of Bethesda. That's right. And now, in it, for him, it actually told us he had been afflicted for 38 years from birth. But we never get this guy's age. We have just no clue. So the, the disciples, though, this is very interesting. They ask the question, who sinned? Now, I think we've talked about it before. We'll say it again. It was very common in first century Israel, first century Judaism, to, to connect every bad thing that a person might experience with sin. And, and it wasn't just general. It was, there was like there was an expectation that there was some sort of direct connection. And of course, you hear that in the disciples' language. Was it the man himself or his parents? But even that, Samuel, think about it. It's kind of a weird question. If the man was born blind, when would he have had to sin? Uh, That seems like a dead end. In the womb, (laughs) which seems, I mean, it's just, well, but wait, that's not even possible, right? (laughs) So it's a really weird question. Who sinned, the man or his parents? Now, the scriptures, this whole idea of uh, this direct connection between my sin and bad things that happened to me, well, the scriptures clearly show that this is, it's just not true. It's not the way it works. You only have to read Job, but there are others all around the wisdom literature. You see this. The thing is, it's not mechanical. It's not formulaic, but for whatever reason, it remained firmly planted in the minds, in the common thinking of first century Israel. And really, it's not a lot that, not a lot different from when we talk about uh, Messiah. What did they expect Messiah to be, Samuel? Yeah, and yet he wasn't that. And the crazy thing is they actually had in their thinking, their writings, whatever, they had the idea of a second kind of Messiah, which is really weird because his first trip, he was nothing like the conquering king. The second trip, he will be. It's amazing. But anyway, they just got stuck on this idea that if there's something bad happening to you, it's because of some sin that you did. Anyway. So when you take all of Scripture together, we see that, that all evil, all bad things, whatever, whatever you want to call it, okay, it is indeed the result of sin, but it's, but it's general, right? I mean, if, if there was no sin, there would be no evil or no bad things, but sin does exist, and so evil and bad things also exist. Sometimes people are affected by other people's sins. Sometimes maybe they're affected by their own. It's, it's, uh, we simply live in a world affected by sin. Now, it could be there's a direct cause, direct correlation, but it's not necessary. And just to kind of show, uh, my mom, she's passed away. Uh, she had Alzheimer's. And, and so the question would be, well, did she get Alzheimer's? Was that a direct result? of sin in her life. And all you can really do is say, well, possibly. I mean, it could have been, or it could just be that Alzheimer's, my mom's, everybody else's, all the different things that we deal with as humans, it's really just a sad manifestation. It's a sad result of all of the sin that is rampant in our world. And like Alzheimer's in particular, it is a horrible, slow-motion image of death and just how destructive sin actually is. Now, possibly, 
and probably I would say this is going to be more often the case. We're we're suffering by the the overall general effects of sin. Now we're we're contributing to it, I'm sure, right? But we shouldn't look so hard for that direct connection. We all probably sin enough to deserve our share of sad, horrible things, I guess. But you shouldn't have the idea of God just kind of sitting up in, in heaven on his throne going, Whoa, look at what you've done. Alzheimer's for you. It just that That's not, that's a horrible image of who God is. It's just not right. We live in the corruption and the death that sin brings. It's all around us. We're affected by it, sometimes directly, sometimes not. Sorry, I had to do a little soapbox there because, I don't know, you hear people, they I, they get wrapped up in that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they lay it on other people or they're laying it on themselves. And it just, it's not a good image, not a good picture to have in your head. Mm-hmm. But Jesus, I mean, he kind of ignores it. He doesn't even address it. He just counters it by saying, uh, you know what? It's neither. Which, what kind of an answer is that? I mean, he eliminates the direct connection. It wasn't the sin of either the man himself or his parents. But then he declares that it's so that the works of God might be displayed in him or through him. Now, again, just like it, you know, God isn't sitting up there going, oh man, you're sinning too much. I'm going to give you Alzheimer's. He's also not sitting up there saying, uh, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to make this guy blind at birth so that later I can just show off. Now, does God have the right to do that as as sovereign over all creation? Yep. Of course he does. And is it is it even do we have to say that it's possible? Could God do that sometime? Birth someone or someones for very specific purposes in their lives, you know what? They have some suffering. Is is that possible? Yeah. Yeah. But don't make that your your dominant image as if God is some sort of evil, you know, I'm putting his thumb on humans all over the place. That's the wrong image. Everything he is doing is for his glory and for the redemption of all creation. So, you know, kind of give him the benefit of the doubt in there. The funny thing is, Jesus, he, he kind of leaves, he leaves them with no, I don't know, it feels like no reason. It's not him, it's not his parents. But, but also, you got to kind of wonder, does Jesus know that he's going to heal him? And, and you think that he probably does. And so he uses, we could say, let me put it that way, we could say that Jesus is using his knowledge of what's about to happen, just to give the disciples some sort of meaning, because that's what they're looking for. Well, it, it had to be him. It had to be his parents. And Jesus is like, nope, neither one. And then it's like, they're lost. I, I don't have anything. What, what is it? So he gives them, you know what? It's so God's works might be displayed. This uh, lifelong blindness uh, just kind of is setting up the point that Jesus wants to make, which, you know, we could see some of that. But anyway, Jesus says something remarkable. He says, we have to work while it is day because night is coming when, when no one can work. And so th- this is, uh, this, some, some of these parts are hard to read because you, you kind of get too involved and it's hard to get your head on a straight path. But there's a lot of things involved here. Just think, going back, you're in the first century, Samuel. You're in Israel. And somebody says, hey, you got to work all day. But then when night comes, you have to stop. Is there anything you can think of that reminds you of? And that's got Sabbath written all over it, where even their calendar for the day, the day for them started in the evening and not in the morning because they wanted to be defined as a people where their day is starting off with rest rather than with work. Yeah, yeah. And and they come out of darkness. All that's so good. 
So yeah, there's Sabbath imagery in what Jesus is saying. And if, if you have any insight at all into Jewish culture, there's all kinds of hurried work that's going on before the Sabbath arrives, trying to get everything set before sunset. But in addition, there's also, there was a common idiom back in Israel, uh, day represented living and night represented dead. And so Jesus he must do God's work. Uh, and I guess you could say he must do Messiah's work. They, they are acts of Torah, signs of the kingdom, all of that. But he has to do it while he is alive. And we know within six months, his death is near. It's coming, right? And so similarly, they, his disciples, or we, we must do God's work. And this is going to include acts of Torah, signs of the kingdom, stuff like that while we are alive, because we're all going to die. They all died. We're all going to die. And this is an important image. Those works have no value in death. Every good thing that you can do, every act of righteousness that you can do, which in some sense is like going against maybe your own will a lot of times, but all of those They only have value here in this world and in this age because in death, they don't matter. And in the world to come, they won't matter because we're all going to have the Torah written on our mind and our heart. Everybody's going to do the right thing. So such a powerful statement. All of this, all the images it brings in, just very, very powerful. But Jesus still isn't done. He's still going to kick it up a notch. Hmm. That gives me all kinds of David vibes in the Psalms. And I know just... I'm sure there's so many examples in that book, but one that comes to mind initially is in Psalm 6. In verse 5, David says, For there is no mention of you in death who can praise you from Sheol. Um, and it's exactly what you were just saying, Paul, that like that's what's so precious about life. Yeah. And be- before the kingdom and the world to come is that our our actions and our decisions matter because in the in that second space we're not going to have as much of if any of an opportunity or a choice in the matter because for those that are gifted with life the law is going to be written on their heart and it'll just be a part of who they are yeah it's such a cool image and and we get to be a part of it i, I don't know i think it's super cool jesus continues though he calls himself the light of the world and he said he's saying that I guess in some sense, while he's living here, it should be thought of as day. That's reasonable. And logically, his death, well, that would represent night here. Now, what's interesting, though, you know, and and again, we've brought in a lot of ideas, and so I, I hope I'm not confusing it, but in a sense, we're talking about the works of God no longer being done, at least by Jesus himself or through Jesus himself. That much is true, but it's not all bad news because if we remember, Samuel, what did Jesus tell us we are to be in this whole, you know, light of the world scenario? What what are we supposed to be? I mean, I remember him saying that we also are supposed to be light and salt to the earth. Exactly, exactly. We're supposed to be that same light of the world. If we actually fulfill our role, if we act like, you know, quote unquote, true humans, if we be the image of God, then we too can be the light of the world. In fact, if you think about it, the potential in, in, in a way, it's actually greater there, there, there will be greater light because there are so many of us. Now, Jesus was awesome and obviously fulfilled, or not fulfilled, filled with the Spirit, all of that. But imagine millions of us all across the earth, if we're actually acting like true humans, bringing some Jesus, bringing some kingdom into the world, that's an awful lot of light. And so, you know, light shining through us. But see, again, it it happened again. Samuel, we're all talking about Jesus and all this thing, but remember, this is about a guy who's blind. (laughs) And it's like you lose it just in a couple of verses. Mm -hmm. So 
Now, Jesus could have, and we've seen him do it. He could have healed him super, supernaturally, just a word or a thought, right? Jesus does that. But Jesus heals the blind man by mixing up some mud with his spit. And, you know, side note, just a little reminder, saliva was believed to have a lot of healing properties in this time. I mean, we know it does to some degree, but it was kind of, I think it was blown a little out of proportion back then. But but here's the thing. He, mixing up the mud, okay, that's one Sabbath violation. Uh, he puts the mud on his eyes. Whoop, that's another Sabbath violation. <laughs> and he tells this guy to go wash in the pool of Siloam. That is a third violation. Okay, the first two by Jesus and sending that guy would have been a third one unless they blame Jesus for sending him or whatever, right? So it's just amazing. And and John mentions that this, it's the pool of Siloam and it means sent. And, and this is referring to like to be sent out or to be sent away. And that's the idea of being released. So he's sent to the pool of Siloam. He's sending him to be released. I think that's kind of cool. But even better, kind of ties into the story that's that's coming up. Jesus, Jesus is the one sent by God. So kind of hold on to that. Now, are, are these details important because Jesus's reference of day and night is kind of, we're inferring that this is happening on the Sabbath? Or are we just pointing out that those acts, if they were performed on the Sabbath, they would be a violation? Yeah, that's me cheating a little bit because I know it's coming. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, I just kind of had to set it up because if I said it later, we'd kind of forget the details and I just wanted to get it around where it was. But yeah, this it's important that you see <laughs> these are Sabbath violations. We're going to find out it's on the Sabbath. Dang, I ruined your surprise. <laughs> no, no, it's probably better that we said it. So also, we've talked, Samuel, quite a bit about Sukkot. And we talked a little bit about the idea of the water drawing ceremony that's played a big, big part. Remember, it was the the priest and people would kind of follow him down to a pool somewhere and he'd fill up his pitcher and then he'd head back and all this stuff. This was the pool that they went to draw the water from. It's the pool of Siloam. And side note, by the way, this was uncovered in around 2004. And it's kind of amazing. I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's It's oddly shaped and it's really big, hundreds of feet her side is it's just it's a big pool but this is also important notice how it says he went to rinse the mud off his eyes or that's what jesus tells him to do it says that uh he went and washed and came back seeing okay just i mean i i'm guessing that everybody who's listening or most everybody who's listening is going to be like me and they're thinking yeah the guy's kind of leaning over the water and you know he's sort of tapping the water on his face you know we're just washing the mud off right no we're talking about immersion this guy when he went to wash himself he immersed himself in the pool his entire body and he probably did it three times, just because culturally speaking, that's just, I don't even know what else they would do. I mean, that was the thing. You just, you immerse three times, but the man does that. He goes down to this pool. He immerses his entire body three times and then he's healed. He can see. And obviously he can see physically, but again, the story that follows, we get the hint that he also seems to be able to see spiritually as well. Remember, blind from birth. But the things that he's about to say and do, it's kind of cool. So hold on mm -hmm. to that too. Now, going back real quick to those three violations that you did mention to set us up for the latter part of the story, you <laughs> yeah. said one of them was Jesus telling him to wash in this pool, the pool of Siloam. And so is that, is that a violation um, in that that pool was off limits to immersions other like other than the festival of Sukkot or in normal times outside of the Sabbath were people performing immersions in this pool regularly? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm going to have to, you know how, I'm sure I've said this before, when I've studied and I know what I'm going to say and I got stuff in front of me, I, it's like I know what I'm talking about. And when I don't, then 
Sometimes I remember things, sometimes I don't. So this is one of those where you're catching me with a blank. I know that the the potential issues are sending the man to travel some distance, walking that distance. It may have exceeded what was reasonable. So it could have something to do with the walking. It could have something to do with the immersion itself. I don't think the pool... I don't think it being off limits or anything is really the idea. It's it's more a question of on the Sabbath would would they have allowed someone to go immerse themselves for something? Uh, it, but great question, Samuel. And sorry, I don't I don't feel like I can say with authority. Gotcha. But there's there's stuff. Yeah, I just was trying to get a picture in my mind. <laughs> yeah, truth is, I probably knew when I wrote this. <laughs> weeks ago (laughs) but yeah right now i'm like yeah yeah i don't don't know i don't remember okay it's a good question though yeah anything else no i'm excited to see what happens next yeah let's keep this story going so john chapter 9 verses 8 through 12 the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying is this not the man who used to sit and beg Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. So there's not a whole lot to say about this because this is just narrative storytelling, right? So you're, you're picking up on it as we're reading it. But you get the idea. Word starts to spread about this healing. And there's a little bit of controversy. I mean, is this really the guy, the one that used to sit here and beg? And, you know, some are saying yes, some are saying no, but he's trying to make it clear. Hello, I'm right here. I'm the guy. I sat here begging all the time, right? But they then, it's like, well, then what happened? How exactly did it happen? How were your eyes opened? And he, this is kind of important. He faithfully recounts the story, gives a, you know, a reasonable amount of detail And they want to know where the guy is. Where is this Jesus character? And understandably, I mean, Samuel, they're asking a guy who up until moments ago was blind. Where is the guy that healed you? (laughs) I mean, isn't that crazy? Now, understandably, the healed man has no idea. And to be fair, Jesus could have been standing right there. He could have been standing right in front of me. He'd never have known because he was blind. It's just, <laughs> it's comical, right? Yeah. But, you know, whatever. And, and I mean, you don't know. Was it really that comical in life or is this just kind of the way John's story came out? Well, I don't know, but it's, it's funny. We, should, we, have to, we have to take a moment to laugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do want to say really quickly, though, that these neighbors, their reaction and their seeming inability to recognize this man, I think that maybe showcases a little bit of where they are at as people and neighbors towards their fellow man. Because, I mean, if the guy was begging for years on end, or at least a significant amount of time, that has to leave an impression on your memory. And you're saying that you couldn't recognize him just because his sight is restored. Like, I mean, I was reading some stuff a little while ago about the Jewish aspect of giving charity and how it's so interwoven in their culture that even a, like there was an expectation that if a homeless person received charity, they themselves are to provide charity to someone else who is, like a homeless person who's less fortunate than they are. <laughs> right, so it just right. it's just baffling that they're they're so blind like spiritually that they're it just shows that they weren't very good neighbors to him. Yeah, and it's a great point Samuel and the bad part is that all of us are probably feeling a little convicted because how is how easy is it to look right past 
people. Mm-hmm. People we see every day. Maybe they're on a street corner begging for for change, or maybe they're somebody you work with or somebody, right? We look past people, and it's good lesson, Samuel. Thanks for bringing that one up. Ooh. All right. What else we got? John chapter 9, verses 13 to 17. The story continues. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So, the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. Okay, now that's a little harder to follow. A lot happened in that little bit right there. So first, you might you might be wondering, why did they drag this guy who just received his sign to the Pharisees? And why would they even do that? I mean, it's, it's basically, in their world, it's like taking him to a Torah court. Now, John, being the awesome storyteller that he is, he actually lets us know. The problem is it was on the Sabbath. Jesus had violated the Sabbath again. Now, of course, he didn't really. He didn't, he didn't violate Sabbath truly, you know, according to the, the, the Torah. And, and, and we know this, again, because he's a sinless Messiah. But from the either popular or common sort of legal perspective, he had violated Sabbath. Only healing for the purpose of saving a life was permitted. But, and we've talked about this before, Jesus disagreed with that interpretation. And so he acted as if alleviating human suffering was reason enough. And of course, it is, because Jesus said so, right? (laughs) And this, uh, we're not going to go over it again, but it takes us back to Hosea 6.6. The idea is that compassion is greater than the temple services, and the temple services are greater than the Sabbath. Therefore, compassion is greater than the Sabbath. That was sort of the equation. It's almost like it's a mathematical equation, even. Uh, going back to Hosea 6.6, 6, you, you sort of see the picture. But anyway, this was all a big debate in Jesus' day, and This is very likely the reason that he ended up before these Pharisees, before this court. Now, it could be, it could be that some probably thought that that they were helping Jesus, doing Jesus a favor. Hey, these guys need to see what you've done. This is awesome. And then there were probably some who were thinking that, hey, this is going to do it. This is the thing that's going to take him down, right? Because there was division all over. Here's the thing, though. If Jesus did these things on the Sabbath and these guys are sort of gathering together and, I don't know, let's say that they're doing some sort of an investigation, were they doing that on the Sabbath too? And I'm going to say probably not. Probably not. And, I mean, it could be. But even when you look at the words, In verse 14, it says, Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Well, you could read that as, yeah, it was a day earlier this week, or you could read it as, no, it's today. I'm just leaning toward, I think it was a different day because I don't think they were gathered, you know, on the Sabbath to judge or any of that kind of stuff. But anyway, you can decide for yourself. But then the Pharisees, they also ask what happened. The people had asked, now the Pharisees ask, and (laughs) it's funny, maybe John is summarizing for space because he's already written the stuff above, or maybe the guy that's been, he was blind and now he sees, 
maybe he's already getting a little tired of telling the story. Or maybe this guy already has a little bit of an attitude toward the Pharisees. And thinking about what you talked about earlier, Samuel, out of all the people who should be faithful to be a friend and to do justice and show mercy, who should have been the ones to do it more than anyone? Should have been the Pharisees because they apparently knew their text the best. Yeah. And so maybe the blind guy, formerly blind guy, is kind of going, yeah, you know what? It's kind of a bummer that a lot of people didn't help me, but you guys, it's the worst of all. So maybe he did have a little attitude to him. I don't know, right? But whatever the cause, this guy gives like the super abbreviated version. He did the mud thing. I washed. I see. Boom. <laughs> Tough acting, ten acting. We're out of here, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's kind of comical from the outside. But it was enough for the Pharisees to sort of enter into their debate. And and this is important to see, Samuel. I just said it. Who's the group we're talking about? The Pharisees. Pharisees. And there was division. Mm. Some people thought Jesus was a good guy. Some thought he was a bad guy, right? And you have to catch that. Pharisee doesn't translate into the word hypocrite. <laughs> I mean, we get how that that, you know, is applicable as an adjective, but it's, anyway... Some thought that he was not from God, and their reasoning was because, he, in their estimation, he was violating Sabbath. And they, they would have been absolutely correct if their current Sabbath laws were, in fact, in line with the Torah, but they'd actually added to the Torah, and, and so it didn't, it didn't fit. But there were some other Pharisees. They thought that the signs that Jesus was was working, doing, they thought those signs were compelling enough that, I mean, he must be from God. Now, I'm sure they were open to the idea that uh, they were, you know, sort of missing something in his behavior. I mean, they would have wanted to see more than just signs. But it's just to point out, all, all Pharisees are not the bad guy. They're just not. And then at the very end, again, I don't know. There's a lot of this. John is not known to be comedic, really. But I don't know. Some of this stuff is really funny to me. The Pharisees, they're supposed to be the most knowledgeable of all the people. They couldn't agree among themselves. So what do they do? They ask the formerly blind guy, what do you say about him? (laughs) I mean. It's crazy to think that that actually happened. It's so weird. But the dude, he was bold, super bold. He answers. And and in a way, this is where I was talking. Yeah, he was physically able to see, but maybe he was able to see spiritually as well. He was definitely able to see more clearly than some of them because he answered, he is a prophet. And he was absolutely right. A prophet You know, it's one who brings the words of God, the message of God. And in hindsight, obviously, we look back and we go, yeah, and he wasn't just a prophet. He was the prophet. Hmm. That's so good. I'm I'm just really surprised right now and that we're in, I don't don't feel like we're in the book of John right now because he's usually so mystical and not so descriptive in his narrative. Um, I don't, it just, this story has to be important to John, the writer, if he's devoting this amount of time and detail to it. So I hope we can continue to get some really good nuggets of practical wisdom from this situation. Well, it is, it's, it's actually a really good narrative and it is very surprising that it comes from John because he usually makes them a lot harder than this. But yeah, let's go on. Uh, John chapter nine, verses 18 to 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, 
and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. (laughs) Kind of throwing their son under the bus there a little bit, right? (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) All right. So John, he pulls, I don't know, I think it's kind of a cool trick. He's been talking about the Pharisees. And he showed us that some believed and that some did not. And now John switches. He now refers to the skeptical ones as the Jews. Now, we've shown how John has used this label in various ways, many of them derogatory. And we know that you can't just... Read John's use of the phrase, the Jews, as meaning all Israelites. It rarely works. I don't even know if it ever works. But anyway, the skeptical ones decide to bring in the formerly blind man's parents. They want to know if he really was born blind and how it was that he came to see. And the parents, I mean, they're super clear. That is definitely our son. He was definitely born blind. He definitely now sees. And we definitely don't know how that happened. (laughs) You need to talk to him. (laughs) But a little side note, they mentioned that he is of age. Samuel, got to guess what that means? Uh, Is that like referring to bar mitzvah age, a boy becoming a man? Yeah, and in this case... It means that he's at least 13 because he is able to legally testify in a court. That's very applicable here in this scenario. So, we again, we still don't know how old he is, but at least we know he's, he's a teenager. Got that going for us. And then John, uh, you know, he kind of lets us in on a little bit more of the backstory. The Jews, and, and again, I think here we can probably just refer to as the Jewish leadership or the ones who weren't believing or whatever— had already made it clear that anyone who would declare this Jesus person to be the Messiah was to be put out of the synagogue. And and for clarity, that means that they were to be barred from participating in any synagogue, not just a specific one. Now, to be fair, and if you just think about it, it probably would have been really difficult to enforce such a thing. And... It's easy to imagine maybe, you know, the them saying stuff like this kind of goes unenforced. And the truth is, at least what we do know from history, some writings, uh, it mostly wasn't enforced, not in the synagogues or the temple. But it was enough to scare people. Yeah, right? Kept people in line. Fear does that. We see that all over the world today. But there you go. I do think it's interesting, though, the contextual detail with the parents bringing up about he is of age because if he was a grown man, why would they need to say that to the Pharisees? <clears throat> so Good like point. there could be like he was on that cusp of them not being able to cite determine his age, which now if you think about if he really was somewhere like thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, that just raises the stakes even more for this character to be on the streets begging And he's just, I mean, from our perspective, being in the 21st century, like that's a kid, like not even graduating high school yet. And he's not receiving charity and compassion from his fellow neighbors. And then, I mean, the the Pharisees seem to respond the exact same way that his neighbors did. And I did want to kind of ask, like, I know that we're in Jerusalem right now and there's got to be lots of people, of course, but were the Pharisees group in general... Um, would would some of the Pharisees within this group been familiar with this guy if he was begging in this area? Would would some of them at least cross paths, or is it harder to say that because it, Jerusalem is such a big place and there's so many Pharisees at this time? 
Yeah, I mean, for sure. It would be very difficult to make a guess. Uh, I think it's completely reasonable to think that, come on, few of them had seen this guy. Sure. But yeah, it's it's hard to know. To kind of, I, I don't want to say push back because that sounds like I'm not agreeing. Totally love what you did, what you were going with there. But just to say, uh, what reason could they have? I mean, if he was older, why would they say, ask him yourself? Well, John tells us it's because they feared the Jews. Mm-hmm. And why were they even talking to the parents in the first place? Because the Pharisees didn't, uh, didn't believe the guy or, you know, the people or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's... Uh, But see, that's that beautiful thing again. So much detail and yet so much room to to work within and and get that mental image and see all the things that that God may be communicating through the scriptures to us. It's super cool. Super Mm -hmm. cool. All right. So let me see. I think we've finished that little bit. Let's go to the next one. Uh, This is John chapter 9, verses 24 through 34. Yikes. That's long. It must be good. I couldn't break it up. (laughs) So here we go. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, Now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. (laughs) Sheesh. Yeah. Oh, man, this this is great TV right here. Oh, wait, uh, this is all audio. But anyway, this is really good. I got caught up in what I was seeing in my head. So these Pharisees, they're just not getting the satisfaction they seek. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's not working for them. It's like nobody's telling them what they want to hear. So they call the formerly blind man in again, and they tell him, Quit saying that Jesus healed you. Say that God did it. Give the glory to God and not to this man. We know he is a sinner. Okay, Samuel, is it reasonable and good for the man to give glory to God? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There was nothing wrong with that, except that they were saying, yeah, don't give any glory to this guy because we know he's a sinner. This is such a great reminder. It's so easy to look at the Pharisees and go, oh, bad guys, they're dumb. (sighs) You need to learn to read the scripture and recognize when it's painting a picture of us. Such a great reminder for every time we really think we know something. We could be just like these Pharisees and just be just as wrong as wrong can be. But the man's response is great. He's like, well, I guess I can't really say whether he's a sinner or not. All I know is I was blind and now I see. And I think that it's reasonable to see an inference in in that statement. I think the guy is is already saying, 
if God did it through him, he can't be too great a sinner. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is I was blind and now I see. It's kind of like saying, yeah, I don't think he's a sinner, <laughs> right? I don't know that his uh, his theology is all that solid, but I mean, again, he's been a blind beggar all his life. What do you think he's supposed to know? So anyway, they go back to questioning him, or maybe we should say badgering him. What did he do? How did he do it? And now, I, I, this is so cool. We see more boldness, more attitude. And and I know we talked about it before, like maybe he's got a little attitude toward the Pharisees. Well, <laughs> he's really got attitude right now. And we might also just look at this and say, oh, it's spiritual sight. I think that's a reasonable label as well. But he says, I've already answered these questions. Why do you want me to say it again? <gasps> oh, wait. Did you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> I think that's so great. I mean, what's that thug life? They do that air horn thing. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if they had that back then, buddy, that would have been going. Did you want to be his disciples too? <laughs> that's so good. Yeah. So anyway, the religious leaders, they're entering into this argument with, I, I, this is funny also, they're entering into an argument what, with what would have been considered the lowest of the low. And I don't mean that in like a a totally mean sense, but in terms of theological discussion, etc. This guy didn't he he didn't have any chance to have any part of that. But they've entered into an argument now with a formerly blind beggar. I mean, this is crazy. And and then they say, "You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses." And that statement is supposed to convey a couple of important things. Number one, it conveys their superiority. They can say things, and this guy shouldn't have anything to say about it. So it's kind of arrogant, right? But it's their superiority. But more than that, it also was their authority. It was accepted. Moses was authoritative, and, and they are saying we're disciples of Moses. So that, that was their authority. Now, uh, well, they continue, we know that God spoke through Moses, and to be fair, they were correct on that, but we don't even know where this guy is from, which is just another way of saying, we don't know where this guy gets his authority. And what's funny about that is not long ago in these podcasts, Samuel, we talked about Something like that, where, you know, he was saying, no, my, my authority comes from God. But anyway, my, maybe these are different guys. It's also possible, remember how we've had this weird thing where some people seem to think that he was born in Bethlehem. Some people think, seem to think he was born in Nazareth. Some people don't really know where he comes from, and maybe there's even some knowledge of his birth story, and they're wondering if he was, you know, uh, uh, conceived in sin or whatever. Anyway, it's possible when they say, we don't even know where this guy is from. It's also possible they were kind of taking a shot at Jesus, his birth story, his, you know, that whole controversy or whatever. You know, we don't know, whatever, but it's a possibility. But this guy, this poor little blind beggar guy, well, formerly, and let's be fair, he's taking advantage of his 15 minutes of fame, right? He, he's really busting their chops and he's going like, isn't this amazing? You claim to be the knowing knowers, yet you can't figure out where he is from. And then he offers his own sort of reasoning. God listened to him, and my eyes were opened. And we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. We know that God listens to the obedient, the true worshipers. Now, I think that there is a general truth in that. I think I think uh, the obedient sort of have the ear of the king sort of a thing, right? But I think his his theology is a little a little uh, black and white, a little too binary. But he goes on. Have you have you even heard of a man born blind receiving his sight? Ever? It seems obvious to me. The blind beggar guy seems obvious. He must be from God. 
or he couldn't have done this. And again, it's not bulletproof. He's not a Torah scholar. He's been a blind beggar all his life. But those, uh, the Pharisees, they, uh, or the, I guess, John's lingo, they're now the Jews. <laughs> they really have no comeback. And they have no patience to even try to form one. So, Samuel, what do people do when logic fails? <laughs> they go for the legs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like personally. They make it personal. Yeah. Personal attacks, character attacks, right? And all you got to do is step outside in America every day. And there you go. They go after the character. They say this man was born in utter sin. And what's funny is that ties right back to the beginning of the story. It's it's kind of like saying the proof is in the fact that he was born blind. This man was born in utter sin. That's why he was born blind, right? Goes right back to that common thinking, which again, John, great storyteller, super cool. And not only that, He's born in utter sin, and that that fact disqualifies him from teaching them anything, which is also a ridiculous position, but that's their argument. They've had enough of the guy. They don't want anything, and so they boot him out the door. And it kind of sounds like the end of the story, but it's not, and that's too bad, because other than Samuel's questions... This is going to be the end of the story for today. <laughs> Man, we're getting pretty good at these cliffhangers. Uh, it's uh, <clears throat> developing a skill for sure. Yeah, well, I got a lot of uh, rope and uh, carabiners and stuff for Christmas, so I'm, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> no. All right, lay it on me, Samuel. I don't really have questions other than just maybe comment Comments? Uh, in verse 29, like, I just find it so interesting of their their confidence. It, it all, I mean, I'm reading into the text a little bit, but it almost gives the impression when they say, we know that God has spoken to Moses. Like They're almost like interjecting themselves at, in, into being at the base of Mount Sinai mm-hmm. when uh, God met the people as a nation married them gave them the tour everything like they're mm-hmm. they're taking that confidence from their oral written traditions from their ancestors and for me yeah. like i'm a western guy and like whenever i see something miraculous happen like it's just a difference of culture and context like seeing something miraculous happen especially with if it's within the context of someone doing it for god like that gives me more maybe proof or credence than what somebody has told somebody else down the line. So, I mean, it it just gives right. us a little bit more context of how the Jewish leadership held the, the oral and written authority of their former forefathers and leaders and everything. But it, it also, it's like, how can you say that you don't know where this guy comes from like he like i mean he's he's lived in the area your whole lot like his whole life and has been coming to the yeah. festivals in jerusalem year after year like i don't know it just it's very ironic that they have this sense of confidence that they know something when they actually weren't there but on the other side of the spectrum in some ways they're witnessing the miraculous and yet they're just they're being so skeptical of it yeah, funny in this story, they're being blind, mm. right? Yeah, yeah, and and you know we we do this. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say we. I know I do. If if we're being you know like literal and technical and and all of that logical, even whatever, and if somebody says, "Okay, do you know?" that God exists, or that the Bible is the Word of God, or any question you want. I mean, when you want to get down to it, at some point you have to go, okay, well, no, it is It is my faith. It is my trust. And yet, if you're anything like me, even though you can, you know, sort of enter into that kind of argument and go, okay, yeah, right, okay, whatever, I'll play by your rules. No, I can't prove it. I don't, okay, whatever. At the same time, 
I know. I totally know. And it it is so difficult to explain to someone who hasn't experienced it or isn't living it, whatever, the same way that I am. But you can say what you want about it. You can call me goofy, silly, whatever. I'm telling you, I know. And so, you know, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of that in them. I don't know, maybe. Uh, and also, don't forget, some of it is idiomatic. We don't know where he is from is is a way of saying we don't know where he gets his authority. Right. It's good. Uh, anything else? No. I, I wish we had more time to keep going. Yeah, it's kind of a good story. But, too bad. <laughs> Gotta go. <laughs> Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.